Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome back to the Way to Fatherhood podcast. This is your host Brian Phillips, and I'm joined today by a few dads, uh, actually, because. Uh, in this final episode of season one, we're having a bit of a roundtable discussion about some big questions related to fatherhood. So I'm joined by a few Cersei dads. Um, Brandon LeBlanc is with us, Graham Pittman, and Matt Bianco. So gentlemen, thanks for joining me today. Um, we're um, going to have a great discussion, and I'm going to throw out some questions to to all of you. And um, this is going to be not so much a focused discussion on one theme, one issue, but really questions about fatherhood in general. So um, I, I want to start with a big question that could go in any kind of different direction and just to get our conversation kicked off. Uh, what's the best advice you've ever been given about being a father? And what's the worst advice you've ever been given about being a father? Um, and so I, I want to start with, hmm, Brandon, I want to put you on the spot first. So what's the best and worst advice you've ever been given about being a father? That is, man, probably the best advice. Well, it's kind of two pieces here. One was that, um, that you can't, or I can't be in control of the, the outcomes when it comes to being the father, which takes the pressure off a little bit, but, I'll, um, but that, you know, doing the best as you can for your, your children. Um, the outcomes are still going to be determined, um, by them at some point. And so there's no, there's no prompt, no magic prescription that's going to promise exact specific outcomes. And, and kind of in line with that was, you know, then when you, so when you make mistakes, you can, you can admit them to your kid. Like you can admit you made a mistake with your kids. And so that allows for allow for a lot more communication, I think than otherwise, may have existed uh the worst advice oh man um and make sure you tell us who gave it like who gave (laughs) (laughs) one time i was talking to matt bianco and he told me uh, no uh, that was mine too (laughs) (laughs) um yeah i'm only circle back on worst sorry my head was on best let me only circle back to me on worst let me give it a thought give me a second to think all right well that's kind of a good sign like if you've already done that forgot. well that you forgot the worst advice you've been given as a father, then that, that might be. Let's good. go with that for the next 30 seconds. So I figure until I remember it. There you go. <laughs> no, that's fine. All right, Matt, we were, we were kind of picking on you. Obviously um, you give good advice, but uh, what's the best and worst advice you've been given about being a father? The best thing is that this is being recorded. So now I will have it permanently in my memory and recorded that you said, I give good advice. Well, nicest I'm, thing you've ever said to me. Told, I was told to be nice on podcasts. I guess. <laughs> Is that the best advice you've been given? Um, <laughs> uh, so best advice I've, I've ever been given. I, I might've actually told this story on our previous episode that we recorded, but I grew up with a dad who was absent because of his work. He was a truck driver, so he wasn't home much. And I remember um, a family relative giving me the advice, like talking about fatherhood and saying that I don't, I didn't 
always have a dad around to look to for an example of a good father, not because he wasn't one necessarily, but just because he wasn't there. And he asked me or he encouraged me to look at the other men in my life and see what, like, all my, yeah, basically look and see what, what did I see in that person that made him a good father? What did I see in that person that made him a good father? And then that person, and then that person, and that person. And then to take all of those things and try to put them together and become, bring all of those things into one person in myself. And so he, I mean, he was basically teaching me to look to, you know, positive examples, good examples, good types, and then try to draw on each of those to become, you know, the best dad, the, a good dad, a perfect dad or whatever. And that always kind of stuck with me, like seeing, trying to see in other people what, what's good in them as fathers and then trying to imitate that as best I could. Yeah, that's good. Um, what, were you ever given any really terrible advice? Yes. Um, the worst advice I would ever, I was ever given was if you don't know how to be a dad, you should look around to them, look at the men around you and figure out what makes them good dads and imitate it. Cause here's the deal, right? Like I was 12 years old or something, 13 years old when he said that I didn't know what a good dad was. <laughs> so what was I going to pick? I was going to pick the stuff that made me happy as a 13 year old yeah, boy. Yeah. And I was going to, you know, learn to imitate stupid things. So yeah. like that, that always let their kids nice stay up way too late and eat junk food all the time. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it was, you know, that passage in Proverbs where it says, um, you know, enter a fool according to his folly. And then the verse like immediately adjacent to it yeah. says, enter right. not a fool according to his folly. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of like that, right? Like it's the same advice. That's both brilliant and awful. Yeah. And it, it depends on the maturity of the person receiving it and taking it, you know? Exactly. It requires discernment and wisdom to know how to act in, in a way that's discerning and wise, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, that's good. That's good. Uh, uh, Graham, what about you? Best and worst advice about fatherhood? So I really like these questions, and I really like those answers, too. Um, best and worst, is hard. those are hard categories for me because – Immediately, I want to uh, find the very best advice I've ever been given in 35 years. So it takes me down a, uh, into my own mind far too much. So I just picked some really good advice that I was given. I won't call it the best. Um, All right. Fair enough. I was told that quality time comes out of a quantity of time. And that has stuck with me for 10 years. Um, it instilled in me a sense of uh, kind of like what Matt is saying, like being, or what he did not have, um, of being present, of not trying to manufacture uh, moments by, um, by just trying to create instances that they would remember, but that those things come out of being present at all times and, and a sense of investment in the family. Um, and I don't know why, but that has always stuck with me is that in order for these memories and for these lessons that we want our children to have to be there, we have to be there a lot. 
and the cream will kind of rise to the top because a lot of it is mundane day-to-day difficult trudging along of life um and it's a hard place to be in sometimes but if we're there all the time the best stuff um will be there in abundance yeah that's that's really good the worst advice and again i'm not sure if this is the worst advice i was i was having a hard time with this one as well uh, and i'm sure i've been given bad advice but maybe i blocked it out or maybe realized it was bad at the time and didn't give it another thought probably not that discerning uh, but some really bad advice i was given was to give them screens as early as possible because that is the way of the future <laughs> that is bad advice it's really bad advice. Um, I don't even think we need to talk about why that's bad advice. Uh, just giving an iPad to a two-year-old because they're going to be on touch screens for the rest of their lives if the future keeps going the way it's going does not make it good advice. Uh, I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, very true. That, that, wow. That, so far, you win as far as the bad advice goes, Graham. Um, yeah, I'm not sure why you ever gave me that advice. Brian. Well, I, w- I wanted to see if you had enough discernment to immediately discard it. <laughs> it was a test and you passed. Good job. Uh, <laughs> all right. So Brandon, I'm, I'm going to answer these questions too, by the way. I didn't just throw these questions at you guys. I'm like, huh, what a ridiculous answer. All right, next. No, um, Brandon, did you, did you think of, yeah, I think um, I was having a hard time because it wasn't, I couldn't pin down a specific person telling me this, but there, it was either implicitly or explicitly kind of implied, uh, even when I was younger, before I had kids, that the like the job of a father is to to give his kids a better, like even a better upbringing and better life than what he got. This kind of idea of, which I think is born out of just a general sense of, American progressivism, like you're only really doing a good job if you're building on, if you're making more money than the generation that, that sets you up. <laughs> um, and so I think it, it kind of, uh, it creates this, uh, implication that if I'm not at the very least providing the same quote standard of living for my kids that my dad provided for me economically, then, then, then I'm falling down in some way. Um, and that really it should be more, right? Like my kids should be able to be in, better sports leagues than I was in or go to better schools than I got to go to or whatever it might be, have, you know, a nice computer instead of a used computer, whatever. I think that's a, a, um, it was just kind of generally implied. Uh, you, you, everybody can hear the, our afternoon horn in the background here at the Cersei office. It, it was just kind of this generally implied. This is what, this is what good people do in our society is improve upon as, as opposed to just, passing on the good things that I, that I got from my dad or my grandfather or whoever. And this, this kind of, um, preserving what was good, I guess, in an, in an attempt to, to discard things that might've been negative in our own upbringing, there's this drive to like, you must vastly improve upon. So that was probably the worst impression I got and, and caused a lot of striving in lots of ways that were probably detrimental to being a good father because I was probably not spending the kind of time more money so I could give them whatever. Um, so that was probably the worst advice or. Yeah. 
Yeah, that, um, and I think that's common advice too. It's it's bad, but it's it's pretty common advice. And I think I don't even know if uh, someone has to state it explicitly. It it's just sort of there, right? It's a cultural cultural demand almost. Um, I think the I'll, I'll start with the worst advice that I was given, and then before we move on to the next question, I'll, I'll give the the best that I think, uh, or at least most helpful. And this is a tough question, like Graham said, and which is why I thought it was important that we talk about it because best and worst seems to seems to change a little bit and morph as as the years go on, where you don't always realize that you're you're given really good advice until till years later when you need it is at the time that you're given that advice you, you know, yeah. Okay. Whatever. Um, I think all of us know that experience of, of realizing that, um, our, our parents or grandparents or someone who was influential in our lives. Um, they were a whole lot smarter. Um, all of a sudden when we became adults, you know, and we're, we're working and paying taxes and, and married and taking care of a family and, and suddenly they, it's like they learned all kinds of stuff just overnight that, um, you know, they became, they went from being foolish to being very wise in our eyes. But <clears throat> so far, some of the worst advice I was given was, um, and, and it wasn't from one person. This is another, like Brandon's is, is sort, of, sort of a cultural thing, is the idea that all children go through the terrible seasons, right? So, you know, every... Every two-year-old, it's the terrible twos, right? And they, they have to be just a holy terror. Um, and you, nothing you can do, it's absolutely inevitable. It was always just wait till they turn two or just wait till they're teenagers or just wait till the, you know, and, and suddenly your, your child loses their mind and there's nothing you can do about that, you know? And that's a complete lie. That's such a fabrication. Um, and I've noticed too that over time that people who accept that idea that you kind of let your kids go a bit because, well, they're two, they're going to do that sort of thing, or they're, they're 16 or 13, they're going to do that, you know, and so on that suddenly you go from the terrible twos to the, the, um, uh, the, the, tantrum threes, the ferocious fours, the furious fives, and it, and it never ends the satanic sixes, you know, whatever. Um, and it's like, at what point as a parent, do you, do you take responsibility to say, no, we're, <laughs> this is not inevitable. You know, not every teenager has to rebel and hate their family. That's ridiculous. Not every college student has to go off to school and completely abandon the faith. Okay. So um, and I, I think setting that kind of expectation to where it's like, no, that's not, that's not what I want for my children. And so I'm going to bust my butt as a father to, to, you know, avoid those kinds of cycles and, and teach consistency, you know, um, as much as I possibly can. Um, whilst understanding, I think like Brandon, you said that I can't, I can't be the Holy Spirit for them you know, but at the same time, I can, I can teach them, you know, and I can model for them. And so the best advice I was given though, um, I I'm having to change mine because, uh, it was one of my answers was kind of already hit on, but I think the need for confession, the need to be really honest 
with my children, you know, um, and be humble enough. If I lose my temper with them, if I, if I fall short sin in some way, you know, and they see it, I need, I need to confess that to them. I need to talk to them about it. I need to admit it. And I need to model the gospel for them when they do wrong as well. So, you know, when I'm correcting them, model forgiveness, um, restoration, and then, and then teach them, you know, to do the same, you know, so if I lose my, lose my cool with them, lose my patience with them to confess it, to apologize and, and to seek to restore that relationship. I think that that's some of the best advice that I was given. And, and that's been very helpful and, and it's paid off in some really beautiful dividends. My, my children are very quick to forgive in general. Um, not just me, but you know, each other even, um, and they've ended up kind of teaching me that lesson all over again. You know, they'll be fussing and arguing and then, you know, I'm sorry and everything's fine again. So um, I think that was some really good advice. But so uh, we're all in, we're all in different stages of fatherhood, really. Uh, Graham, I think you have the, the youngest kids of all of us on this round table. And um, Matt, you have the, the oldest children, you know, uh, yours are for all intents and purposes are, are grown at this point, you know, um, a couple of college graduates, uh, and, um, another in college already, uh, Brandon, um, you've got is it two teenagers now, right? Three, three teenagers. Okay. And I'm kind of in the middle. Uh, our oldest is 13 youngest is six. So I've got uh, across the board a bit. So we're all at different stages. So my, the next question that I want us to talk about is how, how is fatherhood in the stage you're in right now? You know, what, how would you, how would you describe it? What are the, the, the demands like, um, you know, and don't just unmute and, and scream, you know, just <laughs> what, what is it like? I, let's <laughs> Matt and I are bald. So, you know, that those are our answers, but Matt, why don't, why don't you start? Cause you've got the, the oldest kids. Um, so what is it like now in this particular stage of fatherhood that you're in? Um, it's more hands off, honestly. Like I think what I noticed, like if I look at kind of the way it developed or changed over time is that the younger they were, the more directive I was, I had to be, or I was and whether they wanted me to be or not. And then as they got older, I would become more directive when they didn't want me to be and then more instructive and conversational when they wanted me to be involved. Right. And then, and then at, at a certain point, I just can't be involved at all unless I'm invited. I think that, that was something that I think that's something that has to happen in order to like, to really honor and respect them as, as independent people, as human beings that are completely other than me. And as adults, I pretty much have to just stop giving advice, stop inserting myself into their decisions and into their, their lives, unless I'm invited. And so then I get invited and then I can help them talk, think through it or talk through it or whatever. But every time I try to insert myself or every time I have tried to insert myself into the, into their lives at this age, like you said, my, I have two that have graduated. My youngest is a junior in college. Um, but it started a few years ago. Um, 
the, uh, or I noticed it a few years ago, I suppose. Um, but at, at a certain point, you, you have to be invited into the conversation. Um, any, anything else, any kind of imposition of it is it, the only thing it communicates is that you don't trust them and that they're, you don't think they're ready, but they do. And they, and they need to believe that you do too. Uh, so I think that's kind of the, that was the biggest change and the biggest development and the hardest to accept because I really just want to be there participating, you know, but you know, you, you said something earlier that, um, struck a chord with me because my children, all three of them have gone off to college. They're different schools with their different friend groups and have come back home for vacations or holidays or long weekends or whatever, and been completely shocked at how different their relationship is with their parents than the, their friends are. I think one of my kids told me one time that they were sitting around talking, their friend group was sitting around talking and they said, if you could have a portal that would transport you to anywhere in the world, where would you want it to be? And all of the guys in the group were like, Oh, I'd want it to go to Paris or New York or, you know, Japan or somewhere cool and exotic that they wanted to go visit. And my kid was like, I would want one that goes back to my parents' house so I could get home to visit more frequently and more easily. Um, so that, that idea that our kids grow up to have to grow up to hate us. I, I, I mean, I think it's, it comes from something like it's common enough that people really feel it. But my, my kids, I mean, they noticed it among their friends, but then didn't feel it themselves. And I, you know, I, I, I don't know, perhaps at least part of that is not that I was successful at it, but at least the attempt to, you know, the older they got to be more respectful of their ability to make decisions and trust them as independent human beings and adults and stuff. I don't know. So that's great. Wow. Uh, um, <clears throat> man, we could almost stop there. Just the, <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's what we, we all want for our kids, right? The, once they are able to leave home and establish a, a household of their own, we do want them to, to want to return home, you know, to, to have that relationship still for, to, um, to be, to be different, to be independent. You know I mean? We're raising, um, we're not raising children, we're raising men and women. Right. Um, but when they become men and women, uh, we want them to know that, that there's always that sense of home. There's always that sense of belonging in place. And yeah, that's, that's beautiful. Um, so Brandon, we'll, we'll go kind of in, in order. Um, so since you, you know, you said you have three teenagers now, so what is fatherhood like at, at this stage for you at least? Just mostly looking next to me in the office and trying to not make the same mistakes Matt made is the, is the plan. <laughs> uh, no, uh, in all, in all seriousness, you know, th- thinking back at, listening to Matt talk, I was reminded of another good piece of advice I was given along the way, which was that, you know, parenting fatherhood is, is a continual letting go of, of control with the kids. Right. And so, and I've known that, like known that the goal is always to, to have mature adults who can go out into the world. Um, and, um, but you know, at the teenage years that gets, um, different and difficult. Uh, you know, when I let go of the bike, if they fell over, it was like a skinned knee, right? That's what, that's what we're, we're hoping against. Um, 
when I let go of certain reins now, like the consequences of bad decisions or mistakes are, are higher for them. You know, we're getting into the age where girls are noticing boys and boys are noticing girls. And there's, you know, we're wrestling with how to handle dating and all that kind of stuff. And so, um, there's higher stakes, right. And higher stakes about what they choose to do when they leave as far as go to school and not go to school, getting to work. And so it's scary, but it, listening to Matt was a good reminder because when I have tended trended toward, um, squashing my children's will, especially their more grown up will. Um, I have a loving wife who reminds me, um, I want them to come home someday, you know, and not just at Thanksgiving. And, and I don't want them to move so far away. I don't get to see my grandkids and things like that because they're mad at us. They don't like us. And so, um, it's a good reminder, but it is difficult. It's a, it's a tough spot to be in where, uh, my oldest is my son. He's, he's, you know, almost 17 now. I mean, in a year he can basically legally, he can just tell me, see ya. Um, and so, you know, I, I want there to be a relationship there that, that like mass talk, but they do come and ask, like, I don't have, I'm not inserting myself. They, they want to come and ask, but there's still, there's still a role right now for me to interject where there needs to be an interjection with all three of my kids. And so it's a tougher balance. It's, it's a lot, I shouldn't say tougher. It's, it's different. Um, I felt like I was on steadier ground when I knew how to tell them, you know, don't touch that cause it's hot or it's sharp or whatever. The, the dangers uh, and the benefits are a little bit more, uh, metaphysical at the teenage age and, and they can't, they don't quite have a grasp of the fact that they'll get those benefits down the road. Like it's hard for them to, it's, they can hear it, but it's hard for them to know it. And so helping them wrestle with kind of being patient, I think for things they want, they have those desires to be an adult, right. To make adult decisions. And, but they're not always in, in a place where they can actually do that. So um, it's been fun, but also challenging. And, I am thankful in reality for people like Matt nearby, um, like, uh, that I can ask questions to, um, that I can, and, and, and we talked about earlier, other men for my son that I can point him to, to talk to about things and hear from, um, and the same goes for my daughters as well. But, but that, uh, I am surrounded by some, you know, by people who they can hear good things from besides me is, is a definite benefit, especially at this age in their life. Um, when they want to hear more voices, they want to make sure it's not just their parents saying this to some extent where they kind of took that, they took that with, without much question when they were younger, that if my dad tells me it's good, then it's good. But there's, there's a desire for them to hear from other people. So that's been the interesting part of this is, is allowing some other people to speak into their lives in ways that wasn't necessarily, uh, necessary when they were younger. Yeah. Um, I, I think that that's been one of the biggest challenges and opportunities for me too with, um, you know, we have one teenager now, um, and our children are 13, 11, nine and six. So they're, they're kind of stair stepped, uh, down. And so the, the talks are, you know, getting a little more serious. The questions are getting a bit bigger, you know, uh, sort of echoing what you said, Brandon, the, the conversations go from, um, this is, you know, that's hot, that's sharp. Don't do that. Don't do this too. The, there's a lot more nuance and, um, you know, some, some questions that don't have the easy yes, no sorts of answers that are beginning to come up. So the, the talks are a bit serious, the older they get, um, I'm having to explain more serious or complicated 
questions of, you know, faith, of culture, of, you know, they're more aware of um, adult conversations, you know, about current events, about society, about um, their understanding more about history and um, even in things that they read. So um, a lot of that has just gotten to be, you know, a bit more complex. Um, They're sorting through not just um, right and wrong, but uh, right from what seems right. Uh, And, and I think that the, those are, those are really great conversations. It's wonderful to have, but at the same time, I've noticed that as, as the kids get older, there are some things that, that don't change. And those are the things that I'm trying to sort of cling to at this point, um, where, you know, even though the kids are getting older, they still really need me to be present. They need me to be with them. Um, they need me to be available and they need me to listen. And I think that's sort of what, what Matt was describing, what Brandon was describing is that the, the older the kids get, there's sometimes it feels like there's less I need to say and more that I just need to hear. And that's perhaps the most important thing that I can give to them is just knowing, you know, here I am, you know, if, if uh, you know, dad's always available, uh, dad will always listen. I mean, I don't always have the answers. And, and that's one of the tough parts is that I have to be honest about that too. Right. You know, I have to be, have to be willing to humble enough, like I said, to confess when I do wrong or when I lose my temper, but I need to be humble enough to, to also say, I do not know the answer to your question, you know? And so just being present and, and listening, uh, the need for that has become more apparent as the kids have gotten older. And I, I suspect that that will continue to be true, but that never goes away. That's one of the beautiful things, right? Your, your, our kids always need us to be present. They need us to be available. They need us to be willing to listen. So, um, that's something that I found that's been consistent over the years, but, um, has perhaps become a little more apparent. And I don't, but I don't know if that's because the age of my kids or me just learning as a father you know, it could be that too. You know, maybe that was the case all along and I'm just now kind of figuring it out a little bit more as time goes on. But, um, you know, the, the questions are getting bigger. The conversation is a little more complicated. Um, but still the basic needs of, they need to be, they need to know that I'm available. I'm present. I'm listening. So what about you, Graham? I'm just glad I never had to go through that stage where I had to tell them, I don't know. Cause since I always knew the answer, I never had that problem, but I could imagine that would be hard, Brian, for you. That's yeah. tough. Hey, did I mention that um, I'm also going to interview your kids uh, for this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Round table with our children. No. Round table with the Bianco children. Yeah. I was just saying, I was going to say, Brian, I think you're right. We learn it as we go, but I think, um, I think admitting that we were wrong becomes a, um, like when they're younger and we lose our temper and they hear it and we apologize, then they hear it like, Oh, dad made a mistake and he's apologizing. Like I have to make a mistake when I'm apologizing. It's kind of more on that transactional level. I, I feel like when it's with my teenagers, um, there almost has to be more of a conversation to some extent because, um, not to explain myself away, but, but more because they start, they're starting to feel that, that, 
that losing of temper with them or getting annoyed with them as a um, attack on their autonomy and personhood and making decisions for themselves in a way that they didn't when they were like nine, you know what I mean? Or whatever. And so it, it feels more like a, you don't think I can think for myself to them at, the, at this age. Um, so I do think that, that it shifts some as they get older, that, 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 inter- I mean, setting the stage for that interaction by doing it when they're younger. So this is, this is how we deal with things. We apologize when we mess up, um, is, is important, but I think it takes on a different, uh, dimension when they're at that age where they're trying to make their own decisions and they want to start pulling away in a good natural way, pulling away and becoming an adult. So. Yeah, I, I think that's true. That it does require a lot more clarification and ongoing conversation. Um, all right, Graham. So you've got, you've got the youngest kids of, of all of us at this point. Um, what, what are you learning? Yeah. So my, my youngest is just turned three. So we're very much still in in the in the trenches of of small childdom, uh, and then my oldest is nine. Uh, and there's learning that there's a very big difference between a three year old and a nine year old. Um, but my nine year old is still, you know, preteen. So what you guys are talking about of hands off kind of stuff seems so foreign to me. I don't even know what to do with that. So uh, <laughs> so. Uh, Parenthood for me at this point depends on the day you ask me because I live in a very strange world of where it's absolutely impossibly exhausting um, and then other days it's the most wonderful thing I could have ever asked for so and I know I'm kind of preaching to the choir here because you guys you guys all know that but it's a I am answering the questions of why does a plane fly and why is the sky blue and why can't I do that? Why can't I have this thing 50 times a day? So yeah, some days it it feels absolutely impossible. It seems impossible to be the referee, the teacher, uh, the playmates, um, the disciplinarian, uh, the uh, all wise seer, the hero. There's, there's, there's just too many roles. And so Ash, my wife and I, Ashley and I have to remind each other that it's okay to feel like this is way too much. Cause it, it is right. like you guys were saying before, we we're not going to be able to do it all. But at the same time, we have that, that feeling of pressure to make, make ourselves be the ones to give them all the knowledge in the world and all the advice in the world and make them turn out exactly how they should. Um, Cause that's what we want. It's not a bad goal. Uh, it's just, <laughs> we get caught up in it and it's impossible. Um, so I, I don't know, like some days, I mean, I just got to introduce my kid to like the mighty ducks and uh, princess bride. So, I mean, what a time to be alive for me. It's yep. wonderful. Yep. Uh, and then other times I'm the referee all day an entire Saturday where I had so many things I needed to get done is spent stomping out conflicts that are yeah. ridiculous. And it's, it's just like, this is, is this ever going to change? Is this ever going to end? Are they ever going to get it? Um, yeah. And I know they are, but like Ash and I joke all the time that we're in, we're in like baby jail and we have been for so long. Like we can't escape. We can't go do things. They go to bed so early uh we're just like we're just 
the wardens here. So, uh, and I've been on the internet enough, and I see all the mom blogs and the uh, mom Instagram pages, and we all know parenthood is pretty terrible sometimes. So, <laughs> I know my experience is common to man, um, and there's nothing new under the sun. So, I'm I, I'm not discouraged, but man, it, it's it's tough sometimes. Is, is um, this where you say you're not a pessimist? You're a realist. Is it? Are we at that? Point? Well, that, I mean, that's just true. So. <laughs> but no, yeah, it, I mean, we're yeah. we're at the point where uh, like there's there's some days that are just just carve them in marble and let us just keep those because they're just so wonderful and like being able to teach little kids all about you know everything down from. Uh, God and philosophy to let's just look at this bug for a little while <laughs> and just kind of wonder in things. It, it's pretty special and I know I'm going to miss it. Um, yeah, that's it. I don't know. I'm tired. No, that's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm tired of talking about this now. Just, um, but yeah, I, I can remember that. And, and I still feel that too, because you know, we're, we're sort of on the, we're, we're really in transition and, and we live in a small town. So we're kind of at the point where, uh, Shannon, my wife and I can, can actually go out to dinner and our oldest hold down the fort, you know, for a couple of hours. And, you know, we're anywhere we go in our town or five minutes from home. Right. So, um, it, it's fine. So we're sort of, we're out of baby jail but we're not out of, but we know that if we do go to dinner, we're gone for a couple of hours, we're going to get like two phone calls at least. Um, and it's normally, Hey, can we get ice cream or can we watch another movie or something like that? You know? Um, so we're kind of on a, a, a different curve there, but, uh, it is funny hearing all of us answer how the, the challenges are different. Graham, I think Graham is just dying to have the problems that the, the rest of us have. <laughs> and, I, and at the same time, I'm dreading what Matt is describing. It's like, no, 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 I'm not. No, I can't. My kids are still young enough where I can't picture them being the age that your children are now, Matt. So it's, it's, so it's still, it's strange how it creeps up on you right? It goes by so fast and yet so slow at the same time. The, um, the days are long and the years are short, as they say, right? Uh, Isn't it crazy that when, you're, when your children are young, you're dreaming of the day when you don't have to be so hands-on? And then when your children are old, you're like having to force yourself to not be hands-on? Yeah. <laughs> it's so, so strange. We're, the grass is always greener, right? We always, we're always wanting something different than what we have. And that's, that's a really tough thing. Um, I'm just realizing that, that Graham are reminded that by the fact that Graham has toddlers that are exhausting him. And I have teenagers who need to be constantly reminded that having toddlers is exhausting. So you don't want any yet. Um, so we should just really make that whole thing work hard to our advantage. It sounds like uh, your kids need to do some babysitting for Graham's kids. That's what, that's what I'm thinking for yeah. free. They should just, it's just like, oh, absolutely. In fact, they should pay Graham for the experience. I'm, I'm what do you think? 100%. Yeah. All right. There we go. It's on record. 
contracted deal right here. You heard it here, folks. We homeschool, so we don't have that home at class where you have to carry around the bag of flour to learn about how tough babies are. <laughs> but we're just going to make them watch other homeschool kids. Oh, man. I did. I, I remember that project. Oh my goodness. I had the bag of flour and a softball for the head. And Oh, that was crazy. My, my, our flower baby took a lot of naps. Um, more than any human child. That's for sure. All right. So last, last question here, and it wouldn't be a Cersei podcast, I guess, if we didn't mention books for, for good or bad. Right. So, so here we go. Um, do you have a favorite dad from literature? And so I'll go ahead and ask two parts of the question. Do you have a favorite dad from literature? Um, one that says, I want to be like him, right? Uh, or, and then do you have a favorite book that has helped you as a father? So I'll ask both of those just right off the bat. And Graham, I think you've gone last a couple of times here. So I'll let you get started. Um, do you have a favorite dad from literature and then a, a yeah, this was, fatherhood? Uh, this was actually the easiest question for me. And I hope I'm not stealing anybody else's. I don't think I am. But my favorite dad from literature is, uh, he's actually called The Father, and he's from Cormac McCarthy's The Road. Um, and this book is super special to me. Uh, have any of you read it? You're all nodding no. Wait, Matt's saying yes. Matt said yes. I read it. I love it. Yeah, I have not read so it. I've read, okay, so this is a Cormac McCarthy who's known for his westerns um, and known for, uh, well, his deep, <laughs> wonderful stories. And a lot of them take place in bleak settings and have very beautiful but sparse prose uh, or dialogue. Um, but this book's really special to me. I read it when we were expecting, when my wife was expecting Rowan. Um, and so I wasn't even a father yet. Uh, and the story takes place in a post-apocalyptic wasteland. <laughs> um, and it's a story of survival and it's a story of what's really important. But most of all, it's a love story between a father and a son. And the dad, or I guess the father, as his character name is, um, is, is one of my favorite just characters. Uh, it taught me, it showed me a lot of great things about the protectiveness uh, of a father, of the lengths the father needs to go. And I mean, I don't want to compare parenthood to a post-apocalyptic hellscape, but um, there's some similarities. Also don't we, not want. <laughs> uh, so it's, it, was, it was just a beautiful book and it, it just kind of wrecked me. And it was the perfect time because I was right about, you know, to enter into this brand new phase of life that I had no idea what was going on. And I was being given this like shining example of faithfulness at the time. Yeah, that's it. Okay, let's go to uh, Brandon next. The the father that popped in my head when 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 you gave us this question was the father from uh, Little Bridges, um, and not because I I think he's like the perfect dad. I think I think there's some ways where he through a lot of the book he has this the kind of pride that's good 
the, like the, a, a pride in good things. But then ultimately I think he, he pushes that too far uh, to some detriment, but, but in general, he's, he, um, he seems to have a good balance of dictating to little britches when he needs to have something said to him and allowing little britches to kind of learn from natural consequences as well. And so he, he has, he has a pretty good understanding of his son, even at a very young age, wanting to be a man, like wanting to, he's like eight or nine when that book starts. And from the very beginning, he's wanted to, to do man things, which I think is good. And I think it's something we get away from in society, oftentimes trying to encourage kids to stay kids forever in some way, like even not, not on purpose, but when they strive toward, when young men strive toward manly things, we should encourage that even at a young age. Um, and he does a good job of that. He does a good job of, of giving him responsibility, letting him learn from his mistakes. Um, but one of the reasons I like the book in particular when it comes to this kind of stuff is that the father isn't, isn't Little Rich's only example of, of manhood. Um, as the story goes along, he basically tries on different versions of manhood that he sees and likes some aspect of it, right? Like, so he, he tries to act like the cowboy who can do all the trick things on the, on the horse. And, um, he, there's things like that he tries to emulate his father. There's things like some of the other farmers that he does work for that he tries, that he sees that are different than his dad, that he, um, is drawn to that possibly where his dad has some failings or blind spots that he's, he's drawn to in other, other men. So I like the, the book for that reason. But then there's also a man who's like, he pretty much rejects out of hand as being kind of unmanly in this kind of bureaucratic jerk. And so, um, I really liked that book a lot because it, it challenged me in some ways as a father, um, to look at those different men, but also to, um, acknowledge, acknowledge what I was talking about earlier, where the benefit of, of not having to be the only example for your kids, um, because you're not going to be a perfect example and where other, where you're weak, there's, you may have friends or, or uh, a priest or a pastor or just, uh, that, that's, that's strong. And so by giving your kids, uh, in particular my son, but, but, but your kids, um, other good people around them, um, they can see like kids aren't stupid. They can see things that are good and that are bad. And they can see when someone else is annoying people around them. And so I'm not going to do that thing that person is doing. Um, so I like the book a lot for that. It, it gives some good pictures of different types of fathers and manhood, but also, um, shows how having multiple influences around your kids can really be beneficial to them. It can be detrimental if they're, if they're bad, but, but exposing your kids to other good people, um, putting them in the presence of adults and not, not segregating them away from the adults in your life, but, but kind of including them in that, uh, opens up a lot of opportunities for them. So. Right. Hey, um, Graham, I, I think we, I think we actually missed your, your book. Did you have a particular book that's helped you as a father or, or was that the same one? Did you go with the road for that too? Or? I would. Yeah. I couldn't, I can't think of any other ones. I mean, maybe, maybe the piece like a river. I, I like um, the character in that, the father character in that um, who just displays so much patience and, uh, and hope in things unseen. That's good. That's good. Um, all right, Matt, you go ahead. My favorite father from a book is God. And my favorite book on fatherhood is the Bible. 
because I'm a better Christian than all of you. Wow. But um, five virtue signaling points. <laughs> um, no, I mean, yes, but no. Um, to answer the question the way you intended it, my, I have two favorite literary fathers. Um, both of them will sound like jokes. Only one of them is. Um, my first favorite literary father figure is King Hamlet because I want to be the kind of a dad who comes back to haunt my children. Fair um, enough. That's good. <laughs> yeah. And then um, my second and my real, probably the, the more likely to be, um, I really mean this one, is actually King Lear, which sounds really, really also like a joke and like I don't really mean it. But the thing with King Lear that I love is he's tragic, obviously, and he's not a good father. I mean, that's what most people automatically see when they read the story or watch the play, right? He's not a good dad. But there's two characteristics that I think are really, really important. One, from the very beginning of the play, you know, deep down inside, that he knows there's something off with two of the daughters and there's something right with one of the daughters. He gets that and he knows but the way he tests it is the problem, right? The way he goes about testing it is kind of self-centered and selfish. And so it leads to dire consequences and it leads to all kinds of tragedy and problems. But the more important characteristic, the second characteristic that he demonstrates is an ability to change, is an ability to acknowledge the fault and repent of it and restore the proper relationships that he, that he has control over. Like he can't, he can't impose himself in, in certain lives anymore because of the, because of the nature of reality. And so he, he, he has to withdraw from those relationships, but where he's invited back, he, he, he walks back into that repentant and restores the relationship. And, and um, I think that, you know, there's, there's a lot to learn from him, negative and positive. Um, and they're both good lessons, but that positive lesson is a really, really big lesson for us to learn, you know, that we, 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 we just can't force relationships. But when, but when the invitation is there, we have to be open and willing to repent if needed and to embrace and to forgive and to accept, right? And he does all of that um, really well. So I, I, I actually do mean King Lear. Um, the, best, the best book for fathers Honestly, I, I, I really mean this one too. Um, I, think, I think you should read Aesop's fables. I think you should read an Aesop fable every day for the rest of your life, the rest of the time you're a father, so therefore the rest of your life. And I, I don't think there, there are many books that would give you a better understanding of natural law and consequences and understanding of the way the world works in reality um, through stories, through exemplum, example, through examples. And those are the kinds of things that you need to be able to talk to your children about and, the, and kind of examples you can give to them, you can share with them. So I think, I think fathers from the very beginning should be reading an Aesop fable every day until it just becomes part of how they think about the world. And then when your children are ready for it, then you should read them a fable a day. And, and actually the way I would do it is I would read them a fable preferably at the beginning of the day or maybe like before dinner or something or before right after dinner, but don't tell them the fable, the moral at the end of the story. Then after some amount of time passes, then let them think about the fable, then let them try to figure out, sorry. Yeah. Let them think about the fable. 
then let them come back to it and let them try to tell you what the moral is. So if you read it at the beginning of the day, then at the end of the day or at dinner time, you could ask them what they think the moral of that story was. If you read it before dinner, then maybe after dinner, or you read it right after dinner, then right before bed, but give them some time to contemplate it and then have them figure out what the moral is. And then you could tell them what the moral is after that. It doesn't matter. But um, I, I don't, I think that's a, I think Aesop's fables, a, any, some collection of Aesop's fables would be one of the best stories for fatherhood or best books for fatherhood. That's good. Uh, I, yeah. I, this was a this was a tricky one for me because I, I knowing that it was a roundtable discussion I didn't want to pick the, the uh, a father that was like the obvious choice and so because of that I avoided the one that was really my first choice and I think <laughs> we sort of before we started recording we all kind of described that same feeling I think and so. I finally, I, since I'm last, I get to say it. Atticus Finch, right? Atticus Finch. <laughs> you're all, I know you're muted, but you're all mad at me now. Yeah, but um, Atticus Finch is the, he's the, the model father, right? But that's not actually who I, who I planned to talk about here because I was avoiding the obvious. Uh, Atticus is such a great model of, you know, doing the right thing, even when it's difficult and modeling that for your children. And um, and, and man, we, we all want to live the kind of life as fathers that our children can look back, even if it's not at the time, can look back at their lives and go, I'm so proud to be that man's son. I'm so proud to be that man's daughter, right? I mean, we all want to live a life like that. Um, and Atticus models that. Um, and so, I, so I did pick some others, um, and uh, I'll start with one that is a father that it, it, it was a story that was helpful for me because I could actually point to it and go, I don't want to be a dad like that. And this answer is not as obvious. And and the dad that I've learned from in literature to not be like, my choice would be Henry Woodhouse. Um, this is a, it's Jane Austen's Emma. This is Emma's dad. <clears throat> he is the most anxious man in the world. He assumes everything bad is going to happen. He has let his tragedies define him. And, um, and because of that, he is constantly just worried about everything. He's worried about his daughters. He's worried about his grandchildren. He's worried about the future. He's worried about death. He's worried about money. He's worried about health. Um, and I don't want to be that way. Um, I want to model faith and trust in the, the providence and goodness of God for my children. And so Henry Woodhouse is, would be my example of, of who I don't want to be. So I was just thinking through, well, can I pick a good one? And I'll let you guys chime in too. I don't know if any of you have, like the, if you've read stories where you go, I don't want to be like that guy. I'll let you chime back in here in just a second. But so another choice for a good father in literature is actually Mr. Penderwick. I don't know if you guys have read the Penderwicks. Uh, if you haven't read that series, especially Brandon, I don't know if your kids would enjoy it still. I mean, mine, mine do. I, I love the stories. Graham, absolutely. You, if you haven't read the Penderwicks, then you might have read it, but I, I don't, I don't actually know it very well. So. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. Um, but Mr. Penderwick is just, he, is, he realizes that his daughters are, are very, are, strong spirited 
girls and he loves that about them. Um, he is, he's the type of father who is well aware that his children are not perfect. Um, but he, he does love them for who they are. And he seems to understand the difference between, um, the will of a child and the spirit of a child, right? You want the will of a child to be submissive and teachable, but you want the spirit of a child to be unbroken, right? Um, you want them to be joyful and, uh, and happy and be themselves and to be adventurous, but you also want them to, to really want to do the right thing. And so I think, um, and, and he's just, he's completely sold out, just absolutely loves his kids. Um, and so that's, he's, he's kind of a model for me, I think, but do you guys have any, uh, the bad examples that stood out when you read that question, you're like, well, I don't, I don't want to be that guy. I mean, Matt, you kind of, you picked Hamlet and King Hamlet's dad and King Lear. So I guess you sort of answered that question already, but, um, well, for any, allow for obvious answers and bad answers. Surely we should mention Agamemnon is probably not the kind of dad you want to be. Yeah. Yeah. When I, yeah, I don't want to, I don't plan on sacrificing my daughter for favorable wins anytime soon. Um, uh, Darth Vader, I think would be another, maybe not a literary example, but still. still. The, uh, and the, the rector of Justin, um, he, he's, a much better father to the boys at his school than he is to his own daughters. So there's some yeah. positive negative thing going on there too, where you can see the way he Absolutely. treats his daughters versus the way he treats the boys at his school. That's a good including, thing. Including some of his students when they're adults, like he interacts with that, that one young man who had been a student even better than he can continues to interact with his daughters. Well, the, the little that we know about him is, is not favorable, right? What's 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 the uh, what's the uncle's name in in Harry Potter? Dudley's dad. Uh, he's Uncle Vernon. He's a solid solid <laughs> Dur- example. Yeah, yeah. Dur- Mr. Dursley. He's a uh, um, he's not a not a sterling example of fatherhood, is he? Um, <laughs> yeah. So there are there are a lot of bad examples. Um, Charlie in the from Willy Wonka and the the Chocolate Factory, right? Is it uh, Baruch Assault's father? And well, actually, none of the fathers there are, are worth anything, which is um, that's a fantastic book. My children loved that book. And, and that's sort of a story that is the same for them. It gives all of the models of what not to be as a child, right? Um, but yeah, so there, there are many to choose from. I want to thank you guys for joining me for this. Uh, this has been a fun discussion. Um, I appreciate you guys taking your time out to to reflect over these questions and um, and to bring them together. So for Graham and Matt and Brandon, uh, thanks for joining me in this last episode, the roundtable edition of The Weight of Fatherhood. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Uh, I appreciate your support this season and we look forward to bringing you more episodes coming up in the spring of the way to fatherhood podcast. Mm -hmm.